Well, as we continue in John's passion narrative, I need to give you a heads up. The sermon is going to get political. I have no choice. This is one of the most baldly political gospel stories that we have. Now, you know me well enough not to get too worried. I don't do partisan politics in church, but actual politics is unavoidable in church and in the Bible. You couldn't keep politics out of the church if you wanted to. Because politics is the process of figuring out in any social group, whether nations or churches, who has power, what kind of power, how that power is distributed, and how decisions are made. That, dear friends, is the main plot of the gospel story today. We do scripture an injustice if we read John 18 too simply. That's how I grew up hearing this text. The main reason for this story, it seemed to me, was to have Jesus make pithy spiritual quotes. My kingdom is not of this world. I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. But we can't just pull a few good Jesus quotes and say we're done with this story. So let's get political, shall we? Let's review the political players in this story and behind the story. Palestine was an occupied territory of the Roman Empire. There's no doubt, not a shadow of a doubt, who has the political power here. Caesar does, and all that Caesar represents. The population of Palestine, of course, was mostly Jewish. It used to be an independent state with a deeply religious identity and power structure. Now, it's basically powerless and small and in service to the Roman Empire. Because of its strategic location on the Eastern Mediterranean, multiple trade routes crisscrossed through it. Rome had a huge stake in this region. It needed to keep the land in its control and they needed to keep the people in the land just happy enough not to revolt. A revolt against Rome would not just be inconvenient or embarrassing, it would disrupt international trade. If those trade routes were no longer deemed safe, merchants would stop shipping, and Rome wouldn't get the goods flowing their way from other parts of their vast empire. These facts are not incidental to this story. They are central to it. Rome set up Palestine in a way that made this system work. The real Palestinian headquarters of the empire were in Caesarea by the sea, a, a town named appropriately after Caesar. 
That's where Pilate, the prefect, lived, or the governor, and apparently spent most of his time. But as chief Roman officer in Palestine, Pilate would travel to Jerusalem at crucial times and set up shop in his branch office there in the religious capital. It was especially important to do this during Jewish religious festivals. The streets would be full of Jews from all over the country and beyond. They had lots of time for gathering and celebrating and potentially organizing for rebellion. So Pilate made sure that the empire was visible to discourage anything from getting started. And if something did, to quash it before it got out of hand. Same thing in big cities today, New York, DC, on major holidays, whole platoons of uniformed, armed law enforcement officers are stationed everywhere to discourage violence from starting and to stop it quickly before it escalates. That's why Pilate was in Jerusalem. And you can be sure, uniformed and armed Roman officers were also in abundance. The writer of John's Gospel, again, weaves this narrative so that we see Jesus for who he is in relationship to God and in relation to the world and its powers. And John's style is to advance the narrative with dialogue. John is not an action-packed gospel. John is a conversation-packed gospel. So let's follow the dialogue a bit. Kind of like last week, there are two different conversations going on here and the camera cuts back and forth between them. Except here, the main actor, Pilate, is also running back and forth between the scenes. Because being Passover, any Jew would become unclean if they entered Pilate's headquarters, Gentile space. And ritual purification would take too long for them to be able to eat the Passover meal. So we have this almost comical scene where Jesus' accusers are outside and Jesus is inside, no real concern about a prisoner being able to eat Passover, and Pilate, the most powerful one in the picture, keeps running back and forth, trying to accommodate needs on both sides. Not the most efficient way to run a trial. But remember, Pilate has to walk a very fine political line here. Show his power, represent the strength of the empire, but also show enough respect and deference to his subjects that they don't get angry and revolt. Yes, Rome had the power to quickly shut down any revolt, but it would look bad if it happened on Pilate's watch. The way this arrangement worked with Rome was that the Jewish Sanhedrin had the power 
to prosecute and punish for religious infractions, and the Roman court had the power to prosecute and punish for legal or political crimes. So after Jesus was brought inside, presumably presented to Pilate for authorization to crucify, Pilate went outside to the accusers to clarify the charge. When he asked what the crime was, they gave a non-answer, like political leaders tend to do. If this man were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate saw what was happening and said, then judge him according to your law. They objected. We are not permitted to put anyone to death. That was half true. They could not crucify. Jewish law did allow for capital punishment by stoning. But knowing how popular Jesus was among the people, especially outside Jerusalem, they were not about to lead a public religious execution. The political fallout for that would be far too great. So both Pilate and the religious leaders are in a fix. They all want the same thing, but no clear way to get at it. Killing Jesus would solve problems on both sides. It would benefit Rome because Jesus' popularity and rumblings about this king of the Jews had Rome on edge. Rome didn't want a war of rebellion. So much easier to collect taxes in peacetime. But it was politically dangerous for Pilate to execute someone without legal cause. And Jesus' death would benefit the religious hierarchy. Because common folks were spreading this notion that Jesus was the Messiah. Which the leaders knew to be false because Jesus broke religious laws. So he couldn't be the Messiah. They had to silence that talk and quick because a needless popular uprising would hurt everybody and destroy this convenient political arrangement. So here is Jesus bound and imprisoned inside Pilate's headquarters, but still holding all the power in this equation. And both the civil and religious power elite are outside and they are caught in the middle. Pilate comes in again and asks Jesus point blank, are you the king of the Jews? If Jesus answers yes, there's a political crime worthy of crucifixion. It's treason because there was already a Roman king of the Jews, Herod. Of course, Jesus knew why he was being asked, so he answered in a roundabout way. My kingdom is not from this world. 
If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting. It's like Jesus was saying, Pilate, there's no need for you to worry about the thing that you're worrying about. Not saying you have nothing to worry about, but I'm not here to take Herod's place. My kingdom operates at a different level. So you are a king, Pilate asks. You say I am a king. I say I came into the world to speak of truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth knows what I'm saying. And then Pilate said, what is truth? Now we don't have the screenplay for this movie that tells us how that line should be spoken. <clears throat> Was it a deep existential question with Pilate's hand on his chin? What is truth? Or was Pilate saying it in frustration and under his breath as he stomped back to the religious leaders? What is truth? I'm guessing that one was more likely. Because he is truly caught here. He knows what he wants, but doesn't know how to get it. He offers the crowd Barabbas an actual criminal facing a death penalty, probably, thinking that might calm them down. They didn't take the bait. They want Pilate to take Jesus off their hands. So this is where the story stops for today. It's a cliffhanger. We'll pick it up again next week. But I want to leave us with some questions again that make the gospel not just about them and there and then, but about us and here and now. So we need to get political. If we don't see ourselves in this story, ourselves in relationship to Jesus, then we're missing John's main point in writing the gospel. What I see here in John 18 are a lot of people trying to delegate the dirty work to others. And that is something we are also prone to do. Maybe especially we in the church Delegating dirty work to others is a constant and strong temptation for people of faith. It's part of our Mennonite heritage. Being the quiet in the land was not just a theological position. It was politically convenient, if we're honest. We could enjoy the economic and political benefit of living in a robust capitalist system while being careful not to object to any injustice done by the nation state in our name just so long as they left us alone 
to live in peace. I think of Mennonites in Europe in the late 1700s who were invited by Catherine the Great to go to the Ukraine and raise crops for Russia. They didn't have to go to war. They could accumulate wealth. They could be religious and ignore politics and social issues. I also think of Mennonites in North America about the same time invited by the English colony in Virginia to migrate to the Shenandoah Valley to farm the land being given away which had previously been occupied by native peoples. Seems like that's not a far cry from what was happening in John 18 in Pilate's courtyard. People of faith preserving their peace and stability while delegating the dirty work of violence to others. We could name other examples in history where people of Christian faith could not, in good conscience, directly carry out some deed, but were quite willing to stand aside and let someone else do the deed and secretly enjoy the outcome while keeping their own moral purity intact. Or to bring it close to home, surely we can think of times when we took delight in someone's downfall or demise, someone who represented something repulsive to us. In our current political climate, this happens literally all the time. And people of Christian faith are not immune to joining right in. I wonder how often we'd be brought up short if we determined not to delight in any outcome that resulted from some action that we could not morally support or engage in ourselves. Now, it gets a little complicated in times of war, such as in Ukraine right now. We would love for everything there to just miraculously stop. We would love for there to be a change of heart, a repentance on the part of those waging war. Short of that, how do peace-loving and justice-seeking Christians feel about escalating counter-violence to end warfare. In any war, I realize there is a thing called lesser evil, which for pragmatic reasons we sometimes need to reluctantly accept. But it makes a difference what we say about that and how we frame it and how we react when our side starts winning a war that we are morally opposed to participating in. 
Maybe one place to start is to choose not to cheer, either outwardly or inwardly, when bombs drop on the enemy. Be that enemy a nation-state bent on evil, or be that a personal adversary of some kind. As hard as it might be to say in the heat of a conflict, our enemies, Putin included, are human beings that are, by definition, loved by God and made in God's image. That's a biblical truth that we cannot skirt around. So perhaps instead of delegating dirty work to others and rejoicing when that work gets done, a more faithful response might be this. When dirty work is done that we benefit from, that we choose to gaze on the total human cost, the human suffering, and genuinely mourn that it came to this, to weep with all people who suffer and redouble our efforts to work for the healing of all and work for a world that is more just and more life-giving. Let's begin with that commitment by reading together our prayer of confession. You'll find it in your order of worship as well as on the screen. It includes singing Kyrie eleison, so let's begin with that. Almighty God, you empower us to do your will, even when the cost is great. Jesus, you call us to walk in your way, even when the way is hard. Holy Spirit, you accompany us at every turn and every obstacle. Yet we confess we often choose a path of less resistance. God, we admit we often stand aside in the presence of evil, relinquish our call to risk all for God's kingdom, and let the powers of this world have their way when it benefits us. Forgive us when we delegate our kingdom work to earthly powers. Amen. 
God of grace and truth, you forgive our doubt and indecision. Give us the courage to stand up and represent your kingdom of truth and justice and peace. Amen. <laughs>